I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations, and my guest today is Tegan Goddard. Of course, Tegan's not so much of a guest. He kind of lives here. This is a bit like when the New York Giants play the New York Jets. They share the stadium. I mean, one of them is in the guest locker rooms, yeah, and the showers are probably worse there, but they're not exactly away from home. So that's our situation today. Tegan's in the guest locker room. But I wanted to have Tegan on the podcast. I should add that Tegan and I talk with each other a lot. And a lot of that conversation is about politics. So as long as we talk so much, we'll try to hit record on our discussions more often than we have in the past. Today's topics ranged from Hillary Clinton, with nearly all polls showing her leading the national elections, to what extent is this vote hers to lose, to Donald Trump after ridiculing Mitt Romney. Is it possible that Trump may underperform the underperforming Romney coalition? To the Senate and House, how serious could the trickle-down effect be for both Republicans and Democrats? How radical might some of the strategies be for candidates looking to just stay alive? Anyhow, it was a fun conversation, and I think you'll really like it. But before we begin the conversation, some questions. Who will win the White House? What can we expect from the political conventions this summer? What about the House and Senate? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire. And now, entering from the guest locker room, here's my conversation with Tegan Goddard. So do you think that if Hillary Clinton could, if it, if American elections could work kind of like British elections, would she just call for a vote like tomorrow? Would she want, you know, would she want to just get this done, say, let's do this tomorrow? I mean, is she dominating that much at this point? It's a great question. It's pretty extraordinary to see how she, she's been pulling away from Trump since each uh, each candidate kind of won the nomination. Uh, she has been just slowly inching away from Trump to the point where it's kind of embarrassing. When you look at the various forecasts that have been put together, and so our friends over at 538 you know, Nate Silver, you know, their forecast shows Hillary Clinton winning 338 electoral votes. So that's a full, you know, do the math, almost 70 more than she needs to win the presidency. You look at our friend Sam Wong over at Princeton. He he, he has Clinton at 329 electoral votes right now. And if you look at our friends over at 270 to win, their forecast shows uh, Clinton at about 310 electoral votes. So there's just pick three, three of our favorites. Uh, you've got Hillary Clinton way ahead of Donald Trump um, in really everything we've seen over the course of the last month or two um, has shown that Clinton is doing the things that she needs to do to put together a winning campaign. Um, and whether or not this is going to be a landslide at this point, it's too early to tell. But uh, what looked like probably two months ago, uh, Trump could uh, an election that Trump could win. Clinton right now is doing everything right. 
Yeah, that, that's what's incredible about it to me, just listening to you say that and, uh, you know, those stats. And, I mean, the first thing that strikes me is you really seem to have a lot of friends, and they all seem to be, you know, <laughs> at, at various political, you know, groups, new organizations. But but the second thing I, I thought was, I, I remember, I mean, you and I, um, obviously, we talk a lot, and, um, you know, two months ago or, or right after, you know, each uh, party's campaign was essentially over, um, I mean, it, it looked, I mean, you could, you could see, I could certainly see a route for, um, a path for, for Trump to win. And to your point, it's like, since that, you know, point in time, you know, you could almost graph what's, what's happened. And, and Hillary Clinton just feels like she's, um, gotten stronger. And, and look, she got, uh, you know, great, a little bit of, um, you know, at the least good fortune. Uh, you know, from the whole email server thing and, uh, FBI director Comey and, and not, you know, no, you know, some, some political trouble there, but no legal trouble, um, at the time. But, but it's, you can kind of graph it and she's kind of gone essentially, um, in an upward direction. And Donald Trump each week, you kind of feel like, well, at least it, you know, for him, it can't get worse than this week. And then the subsequent week, it, it seems to. Does that feel about right to you? No, that's right. I mean, when you look at every presidential election, we kind of compare it to the one that previously happened. And so if you look at the 2012 election and you look at the coalition that President Obama put together to win re-election, and you look at the losing coalition put together by Mitt Romney, well, you, you use that as a baseline. And you so if you're on the Republican side, you're looking at what Romney had assembled, um, and Donald Trump is looking to beat that in some way. Well, the Republican coalition has always uh, relied upon white voters. Um, and what's interesting here is what's happening among college-educated white voters. Uh, a poll that just recently came out shows that Hillary Clinton is actually leading Donald Trump by 11 points, 48% to 37% uh, among voters, white voters that have at least a college degree. I mean, that's extraordinary. In 2012, Mitt Romney won that group by 14 points, if you believe the exit polls. So, and then you look back at history. So college-educated white voters, how important are they to the Republican candidate? Well, since 1952, no Democratic presidential candidate has won college-educated whites. I mean, that, Chris, that's a long time. Uh, what Hillary Clinton is doing here, and whether it's Hillary Clinton doing it, or whether Donald Trump is just running a terrible campaign, we can debate that one some more. Uh, but nonetheless, that's where we are. We have a situation where Hillary Clinton is really winning, uh, is really putting together a coalition uh, that points to a massive victory here because she's undermining what the Republicans need to do to win. And if she takes away college-educated white voters, that leaves Trump with less educated white voters, but those simply aren't enough to win. So which is it? Which one do you think is, and it's not just one of the factors, but which of those factors that you just outlined um, do you think is is more powerful, is driving things more? Is it that she's just running, you know, this great campaign, greatest campaign in, in history, quotes, um, or is it that Trump is running, you know, a disastrous campaign to the extent that, you know, I mean, he's losing campaign uh, managers and and spokespeople and you know people running away and and Republican previous nominees not wanting to show up at the convention and uh, you know and and 
senators and people running for for you know house and senate not wanting to support him you know is he just running is it is it hillary's running a great campaign or is it that trump's running just such a terrible campaign or is that just you know oversimplifying and it's a little more complicated no i think it's actually probably both are happening right now uh when you look at donald trump you're trying to wonder where is his campaign um there's if you look at the battleground states um, and what was expected in terms of or, or just once again, comparing to where Mitt Romney was, uh, he doesn't have the staff in those states. He's got a quarter of a third of the staff in some of those key battleground states, particularly in the Midwest, Ohio, Pennsylvania, states like that. North Carolina is another one where he just doesn't have the staff uh, and he's trying to hire staff, but he's way behind where he should have been. If you look at fundraising. Once again, he's way behind where Mitt Romney was. Mitt Romney was in this pre-convention period. Um, Mitt Romney was lining up massive amounts of contributions, hundreds of millions of dollars in contributions. Donald Trump, who once said he would raise a billion dollars, he would spend a billion dollars to become president, um, is now suggesting he only needs about half of that because he's got a lot of Twitter followers. I mean, it's just kind of silly. In the meantime, uh, Hillary Clinton... When you look at she, she's doing the things that she needs to. First of all, she's got a massive campaign. Uh, she has been building this campaign for a long time. And even though she had an unexpectedly tough Democratic primary, she has still built out a very large presidential campaign. And as soon as she got the nomination uh, or became the presumptive nominee, she began to spend money uh, on television ads. And, well, we can debate whether television ads work that much anymore or any of these ads work that much. She is outspending Donald Trump by 15 to 1 right now, according to NBC News, in some analysis that they've run. I mean, that's an extraordinary amount. Um, and it's not just she, but she and Democratic-affiliated super PACs. Uh, meanwhile, the Donald Trump campaign has not really spent anything on television ads, and the only spending has come from outside groups such as the NRA, uh, who've been backing Donald Trump. So, you have a situation. So I think both are happening. I think you have Clinton running a good, very good campaign. I think she has inherited much of the apparatus, not only from her own 2008 bid, but also from two Democratic, two successful Democratic bids in 2008 in in 2012. Um, but she she she's inherited that, and she's building upon that. And I think that. Uh, I, I think that she's also being helped by the fact that Donald Trump has never run a campaign and, and the fact that you've also got an awful lot of Republicans who just won't work for him and who are just uh, staying by the sidelines. So, you know, what's also interesting to me about that is, you know, coming out of the, the Trump Republican campaign and, and the way that that was run and the way that he won it and, you know, everything about that style, the, the you know, the big takeaway, and, and you and I talked about this a bunch, is that, is that, you know, are we now kind of post-politics? Is there now a direct, in fact, you, you know, you and I, one of our uh, previous uh, podcast conversations was really about that and how Trump had had really reinvented um, the way, you know, if, if Obama had, had done the, uh, you know, it, it reinvented the way we use, uh, the internet and going back to, you know, Kennedy reinvented the way we use television. Trump had really reinvented the way we use social and, and a direct connection, bypassing everybody, the party, the media, going direct to voters. And, and, you know, there's the, there's a sense that we're really post politics and, and, you know, maybe post traditional political campaigning. Maybe that's a more fair way to say it. And yet what you're describing right now is, 
Clinton is running this campaign by the book, raised a bunch of money, secured the nomination, the presumptive nominee, spent that next period spending the money in strategic ways, maybe, you know, and in, in, in fairly traditional ways, TV ads. And I know you said it's the PACs as well, not just her money. But is this, does this cause you or does it, cause, you know, should we be rethinking this post-traditional political campaign philosophy that was one of the takeaways of the uh, Republican nomination process? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, you notice when I talked about television advertising, I think there's a debate over whether it actually works the way it used to work. Um, and so while Hillary Clinton is spending outspending Donald Trump by a lot, by 15 to 1, on television ads, who knows if it works um, and who knows if that's going to work. It probably doesn't hurt her. Um, but who knows if it has the same power in this day and age that uh, that something like social media has. Um, when you look at a candidate like Trump, who is who is so unpopular and who is so controversial in so many ways and is you know just blatantly turned off uh, what looks like a majority of the of the voters in America with some of his rhetoric. Um, it's actually kind of probably surprising that Hillary Clinton isn't uh, pulling away even faster. Uh, when you look at uh, national polls and you look at the polling averages, which show Clinton six or seven points ahead nationally, um, and then you look at the two candidates and you look at what they said, sometimes that's kind of shocking to me because uh, you see a guy who is, uh, by any measure, just says blatantly racist things. And uh, and nonetheless, it doesn't seem to matter. There seems to, you know, he's certainly getting beat. Uh, by Clinton in every single poll just about, and certainly the polling averages show he's getting beat by a solid margin. Um, and these forecasts that we talked about earlier suggest that uh, Hillary Clinton is is way ahead in the electoral college vote. Um, but nonetheless, you wonder, you wonder why, you wonder how, how Donald Trump could even be six or seven points uh, behind Clinton. You know, you wonder why not that, why that isn't a double digit margin sometime. Well, well yeah, but, but as you're saying, I mean, Hillary's not, pulling away. And, you know, we all know there's not a lot of love lost for her. I mean, we've all seen the stories and the headlines and the numbers that show these are, you know, the two most, you know, disliked or untrusted, whatever the, the, the measurement is, candidates in history. And the fact is, she's not running away with it on the electoral vote. That's that's, you know, she certainly is. But um, you know, the polling averages, whatever, 5% to 9%. It doesn't, it's not, I mean, you, you know, you and I have both followed enough political history. It's not insurmountable. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, Hillary not pulling away. And I'm almost, you know, thinking about the, uh, um, you know, the sports team that maybe has been dominating the first three quarters, but hasn't quite put away, uh, you know, the opponent. And, you know, all of a sudden there's a fourth quarter or uh, just ask the Cleveland Cavaliers, there's a game seven. And, you know, anything can happen in a game seven. So talk to me about uh, Hillary not pulling away and talk to me about uh, what would it take, uh, you know, for Trump to to win this in a game seven. Well, as we're recording this, I mean, we're actually probably we're probably not even talking about the fourth quarter. We're probably talking about halftime right now. Uh, yeah. the, the two conventions have not happened yet as we as we talk today. Um, they're coming up and. When you look at those two conventions, uh, I mean, so this is a little bit early for us to be be talking about this because there's probably a lot of party unification that's going to be going on over the next couple of weeks. Um, so the Republicans are first and the Republicans will try to uh, try to unify around Donald Trump. That's going to be quite a task because you've got 
you know, each of the former nominees in 2012, 2008, 2004, uh, all avoiding the convention. None of them will be there. You've got a large number of politicians, uh, Republican politicians, senior politicians who won't endorse Trump and who won't attend the convention either. Um, in contrast, Hillary Clinton is, you know, a lot of people thought it was embarrassing that Bernie Sanders waited over a month before he endorsed her. Um, but that endorsement came and it was a strong endorsement um, and it was ahead of the convention. And you look at the Democrats and where they stand. And I don't think that they're going to have anywhere near the problem unifying behind Hillary Clinton at this point. Now, there are going to be some outliers here or there. But as we as we begin to try to predict what's going to happen uh, after the convention, I think you're going to see two parties uh, that are in very different places. You're going to see the Democrats much more unified than they are today as we're talking. And you're going to see the Republicans probably the same, a divided party and and people speaking out. People like Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska continuing to speak out against uh, his party's nominee. Uh, you're going to continue to hear a lot of silence when Donald Trump says something ridiculous um, and you, you do not have people rallying to his defense. Um, we have a couple unknowns now. We don't know who their running mates are going to be as we're recording this. But nonetheless, uh, those are interesting decisions. And those are decisions that we've seen in the past that can really change the, the trajectory of a presidential race. You remember John McCain picking Sarah Palin in 2008, initially provided a burst of energy to the campaign, and then she became a real problem for the campaign. You remember in uh, 1988 when George H.W. Bush chose Dan Quayle, it immediately sidetracked the entire campaign. And then you can look at some of the more successful picks. And you look at uh, Bill Clinton choosing Al Gore in 1992, and it really solidified what that campaign was about, sending that campaign on a new trajectory. And as you recall, Ross Perot actually dropped out of the presidential race after the Democratic convention because it looked like the Democrats had, had pulled together in such a way uh, that they were going to be unbeatable. He ultimately got back in the race, but nonetheless, it was that presidential, it was that vice presidential pick that made such a difference in that campaign. So there's a lot of unknowns. We're at halftime. Uh, you know, each each side is putting together their strategies for the for the final half, and there's a lot to go. But right now, I think I'd rather be the Democrats than be the Republicans. And looking back at '92, I, I know that you really regret not getting to uh, see a. Vice President uh, uh, Stockdale, um, <laughs> you know, and and what that could have been. I know you've talked often about, uh, you know, Admiral Stockdale. Exactly. Yeah. You, know, you know, that's the, the and, and then then once again, you know, you bring up Admiral Stockdale because of his famous comment at the vice presidential debate when he said, "Why am I here? <laughs> yeah, why? Yeah, what? Why? Please tell us why. Why am I here? And 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 that brings up the other you know, the other major uh, data points, the other major events in this campaign after the conventions are those debates. The uh, presidential commission on the debates has just scheduled three presidential debates and one vice presidential debate. Um, it will be very. I mean, we obviously know that uh, those will be watched uh, probably by record audiences uh, simply because Donald Trump is there. I mean, you you can't wait for those, can you? I, I mean, have I, those. Right. You can't wait. I cannot wait. I know. I, you know, you know me too well. And now almost any political junkie is, you know, can't wait to watch that because you just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we got to get the UFC to sanction these. I mean, <laughs> just bring in the steel cage. Go right to the steel cage. 
I mean, it's uh, it's hard to you know, it's hard to talk about these debates in this election in, in those terms. I and mean, when we use the sports and sports an- analogies and you've got a sit you've got a situation where I mean, this is about the presidency of the United States. I mean, when you look at uh, some controversial comments that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg made, yeah, um, yeah. you know, commenting on Donald Trump. But but certainly, regardless of what you feel about those comments, you have a situation where she's shown a spotlight on the importance of the Supreme Court. And you can you can it's not too hard considering the ages of some of the justices. It's not too hard. And, and then we have a vacancy on the court right now. But that the next president could name a large number of justices. And it's not inconceivable that if Hillary Clinton, for instance, were that nominee, that you could go from having a court which was pretty much 5-4 or a, a deadlock court on a lot of issues uh, to a court that's 7-2 Democratic appointees. Um, that's extraordinary. And that's not just that's not just about the next four years. That's about the next 20 or 30 years. Um, and that's changing the direction of this country. So we can talk we talk about cage matches. We talk about, you know, the excitement of, of a debate where Donald Trump says something ridiculous. But the stakes are so extraordinary. And I know every four years everyone talks about this is the most important election election of our lifetime. But when you look at the Supreme Court and you look at how important this election may be just in terms of the Supreme Court, it may it may well be one of the most important. Well, so could that unify Republicans? I mean, you know, when you talk about the possibility of a 7-2 Supreme Court in the direction of Democrats for the next, you know, whatever, 10, 20 years, that has to motivate Republicans. It just it just has to. And well, so, yeah, one, yeah. Yeah, one would think one would think that it would. And look look at some of the most major what are the most major issues before the Supreme Court? And one of them is obviously always abortion. Um, and so uh, you you have a situation where Republicans traditionally have taken a pro-life position and Democrats have taken the pro-choice position. Uh, but the Republicans right now, they have a nominee who's been all over the place on abortion. He's taken all sorts of positions on abortion. And while he says he's pro-life now, he, nobody believes him. And so is he really the candidate who's going to unify the party around this issue and talk about the importance of the Supreme Court? It's 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 unlikely. And this goes to one of those one of those fundamental basic rules of politics, which is the divided side almost always loses. And if Republicans can't unify and if they can't rally around their nominee, uh, who knows how bad the damage will be? The damage might not just be losing the, the election, losing the White House, potentially losing Supreme Court nominees. Um, it, it, it could go right down the line. It could go down to the U.S. Senate. And, you know, so I, I don't really put much stock in these predictions. But some people are saying that uh, that a wave could even be created where Democrats could retake the House. Yes. And, and on the Senate side, another one of uh, our friends, um, the Cook Political Report, has, you know, to your point, um, started to make some some uh, you know, evolution in its uh, prediction of where the Senate could go. And they're now looking at, you know, possibly a one to two seat differential only. I mean, they're, they're really seeing this thing tightening up. They're seeing it tighten up, obviously, in places like uh, Indiana. Um, you know, uh, Florida, maybe with Rubio coming in, you know, coming back in, that may have that may help, uh, you know, push it more in the the Republican side. But um, yeah, no, to to your point, there's and and that makes me start to wonder when will the folks running for House and Senate when will they really start to freak out? 
when if if this does go you know sideways for republicans in in the in terms of trajectory is is there a point when you when the candidates the folks running for house and senate particularly on the republican side are just like you know i got to get off that ship and i got to save i got i got to save my own campaign yeah i mean that's that's going to be the interesting thing to watch this fall and this is one of these post-convention things that we will be watching but There are six battleground states uh, in the presidential election that also have a U.S. Senate seat up up for grabs right now. In those six battlegrounds, the polling averages show currently Donald Trump trailing to Hillary Clinton in all of them. But it also shows each of those Republican U.S. Senate candidates who are defending seats in those battleground states, they're up by, you know, two points, two points, three points, four points at one point. Uh, They're all barely up. Um, at that point. And so you could see a situation where, you know, we go back to the start of this conversation. If Hillary Clinton really does begin to pull away and really does win in a landslide, you could see Republicans losing every one of those seats. And if there are seven or eight seats that Republican senators right now across the country, you know, which are kind of toss up seats that they're defending and the Democrats really have only one toss up seat in Nevada that they're defending, you could see a situation where uh, Charlie Cook's forecast uh, quickly turns uh, into another landslide. Um, and while it may be close now, you could see a situation where if Clinton begins to pull away, uh, Cook begins to see a much bigger gap and Democrats winning the winning the four seats that they need to take control of the Senate. Do you see any way, you know, coming out again, coming out of the, the, the primary campaigns, there really were questions, particularly, obviously, on the Republican side around. Well, no, actually, on the Democratic side as well. I mean, Sanders was fighting against the, the Democratic, you know, apparatus and, and the, the party leaders and the Democratic Party and that, you know, it was rigged and fixed. And, uh, um, you know, Trump, obviously the same and, and the relationship with the Republican Party. And yet, as you're talking about this today, you're really emphasizing the importance of party unification that's come together on the Democratic side. You're, you're highlighting how, you know, the divide historically the divided party, the party that doesn't unify as much, um, you know, loses. Is it possible that things swing back and and this ends up becoming a positive referendum on the power of the parties and that, you know, after a really shaky, if not disastrous primary season – the, the parties could come out of this uh, general election stronger than they were before, or am I overstating it? I think you're overstating it. I mean, it's an interesting observation. I, I think that the parties are probably weaker than they were before, and that candidates like Trump or Bernie Sanders, who are essentially outside of the party apparatus, will still be able to use social media, um, digital media, um, to be able to organize themselves, to be able to you know, generate, you know, in Bernie Sanders case, three and a half million, you know, donors. And of course, as you remember, how, what was each donor? 27, my man, 27, $27, $27 a piece. So, you know, he, he built a, he built a digital money machine, um, online entirely. He did not need parties. All he needed was his own pretty face, um, and a bunch of email addresses. And he, he did an extraordinary job. So I think that, I think that in that case, the parties are always kind of, uh, are, are always going to be behind and that any charismatic candidate with a message is going to be in good shape. 
What it does say, though, is that is that the analogy, the false analogy that what Donald Trump is and what Bernie Sanders is, um, I don't think that really works. I mean, you have a situation on the Democratic side where Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are two points on the same ideological spectrum. And that's important because they, they can, you know, Hillary Clinton can propose you know, expanded access to community colleges. And that's, that makes, that brings more Bernie supporters on, on her side. Um, Bernie Sanders can engage like he has for the last month in conversations on the democratic party platform. And they can see eye to eye to eye to a point where Bernie Sanders can not only actively endorse Hillary Clinton, but he can actually actively work on her behalf to, to get her elected. And that means getting his supporters to donate to getting his supporters out to the polls. That's very important in the, on the Republican side, it's a very different situation. You have a nominee who essentially not only did he run against the party establishment, he ran against the issues that are the Republican party. He ran against the party on free trade. He ran against the party on immigration he he ran against the party on so many things. You had a, after the 2012 presidential campaign, you had an autopsy report that was that came out. The RNC sponsored this autopsy report that we have to have. It, it concluded we have to have a candidate who's friendly to Hispanic voters, and you have a candidate who instead is probably the least friendly candidate to Hispanic voters that we can remember in our lifetimes. So you have a situation where it, where many Republicans, Jeb Bush, for instance, doesn't even consider Donald Trump a Republican. He doesn't consider him a conservative. We talked about the issue, some of the social issues, such as gay marriage or or abortion. He doesn't he doesn't he doesn't stand on the, the there. He is not on the same ideological spectrum. He's almost created a new one, and yet one that was able to win and, and, and get a majority in the Republican primaries, which indicates that Republicans have a lot more problems than just, just Donald Trump. This is this is an issue that Donald Trump is a problem for Republicans right now, uh, but he's not their only problem because he won fair and square, um, and he won uh, going around the party apparatus. And it, it indicates that there's a much bigger problem with the Republican Party. They are they are not just divided at the top; they're divided all the way through. Well, there it'll be interesting to see, and there's going to be a ton, obviously, over the the coming weeks. The Republican convention, the uh, Democratic convention, bunch of announcements uh, in in between there. Um, I, I tell you what, why don't we talk again? Uh, you know, in in a week or so, and uh, you know, take a pulse on on how things are going. You. You got you got that kind of time. You got time to talk again uh, in a week or so. I always have time to talk politics, as you know. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. Chris. Okay. Thanks a lot, man. So that was my conversation with Tegan. It's always great to have him as a guest. I'm sure we will get him again, as promised, uh, over the coming weeks. Until then, I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Mm-hmm.